Welcome to Inside the Physician's Lounge with Dr. Stacy. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy Borans. I am the founder and chief medical officer of Advanced Medical Strategies. Today, we are going to be talking about some of the newer drug therapies that are out. We're going to go over the two new CAR-T therapies, as well as the new gene therapy that was just recently introduced. So let's talk first a little bit about what CAR-T therapy actually is. So for years and years and years, the foundation of cancer treatment has been surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy. And over the last two decades or so, we've actually developed some targeted therapies, things like Gleevec and Herceptin that actually target cancer cells by honing in on um, specific molecular changes that are seen in those cells. And they have now become more the standard treatments for many cancers. And over the past several years, um, we've looked more and developed immunotherapy, which are therapies that enlist and strengthen the power of a patient's immune system to attack tumors. And that has actually become the newest pillar of cancer therapy. And a rapidly emerging form of immunotherapy is called adoptive cell transfer. And what we do with that is collect and use the patient's own immune cells to treat their cancer. And there are several types of this. And the one that we're going to be talking about today is car T therapy, because that's the one that has been most advanced. Um, and until recently, CAR T cell therapy has actually been restricted to small clinical trials. But in 2017, the FDA actually approved the first two CAR T cell therapies um, to treat different cancers, and we're going to talk about those today, uh, the first of which is Kimria, and the second of which is Yaskarta. So let's take Kimria first um, on August 30th of 2017. So let's talk about Kimria first. On August 30th in 2017, the FDA granted approval to Kimria for acute lymphocytic or lymphoid leukemia. And again, this is the first CAR T cell therapy that was actually approved. It is designed to treat the B cell form of ALL and is indicated in refractory and relapse disease. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. It is uh, developed um, and distributed by the pharmaceutical company Novartis. And for some patients with resistant disease, Kimria could actually prove to be their, their last hope uh, and some life-saving therapy. So how does this work? Well, T cells are critical to the immune system t- ability to detect and kill cancer cells. However, the immune system is unable to kill cancer cells when tumor-specific T cells are deficient in number, unable to function properly, or fail to recognize cancer as foreign to the body. So Kimria is made of re-engineered T cells collected from each patient. A blood sample is taken from the patient, frozen, and forwarded to Novartis. It then takes Novartis three to four weeks to manufacture Kimria, which will then be re-infused back into the, the patient. So Kimria is actually although a drug, very specific to the individual patient. Each patient's 
version, for lack of a better term, of Kimria will look a little bit different. So we collect the patient's white blood cells. The T cells are isolated and then they are activated. The T cells are grown and expanded and then they are reinfused back into the patient targeted to their specific tumor type. And Novartis has actually stated that they've developed um, uh, a, a manufacturing and supply chain platform that actually can allow for individualized treatments on a global scale. Currently, there are about 30 or so administration centers in the U.S. who are prepared to deliver therapy. By the end of 2017, there were expected to be 32 centers in total, but it does not appear that they are um, all up and, and running at this point. So who qualifies for treatment with Camrya? Well, it is meant to be used in children and young adult patients under the age of 25 who have refractory disease or who have relapsed at least twice. So patients meeting that criteria will likely have already received multimodality treatment, including chemotherapy, radiation, targeted therapy, or stem cell transplant. And less than 10% of these patients actually survive five years. So it's important to understand that Kimria is not meant to be used as first-line therapy for these patients. In fact, it is, um, you know, for much later therapy, and there are probably a limited number of patients who will actually qualify for this uh, particular therapy. The dosing is actually going to be based on the number of um, CAR-positive viable T-cells and CAR, just so you know, actually stands for chimeric antigen receptor. That's what we're talking about when we talk about CAR-T. They're chimeric antigen receptor positive T cells. So once the, uh, the medication is made up, um, sent back to the infusion center, the patients then go to the infusion center and they have to, they receive the, the Kimria. Once it's given, the patient must remain um, within two hours of the administering facility for up to four weeks due to some of the side effects. So you can imagine that depending on where the center is and where the patient is located, it's possible that these patients will need to travel a fair distance in order to receive the Kimria. And once they are within the center's radius, they need to stay there for four weeks. So in addition to all of the costs that go along with the Kimria itself, you may need to account for lodging and travel expenses um, and some of the the meals, etc. for when those patients are, are, are going to need to be basically out of their, their home area. So coverage for this type of therapy needs to be looked at in order to not only talk about coverage of the drug, but also coverage of some of the the other ancillary pieces that go along with it. Um, Kimria is infused really like any other drug. It's given um, intravenously. It is a single dose that is given. It is meant to be given as a one-time therapy, and you should not see it 
given um, as a second time. Prior to giving the Kimria, the patient is pre-medicated with something called lymphodepleting therapy uh, to reduce the, the possibility of reaction to it. And that regimen includes um, other chemotherapeutic drugs, which are Fludara and Cytoxan. And that is actually, the Fludara is actually given um, four days in a row, and the Cytoxan is given for uh, just two doses on the first day of Fludara. And then the Kimria is given two to 14 days after completion of the Fludara Cytoxan regimen. So you can see that depending on where this is given, the patients can be uh, out of their home location for a significant amount of time. So let's talk a little bit about how much Kimria actually can cost. Novartis has actually priced Kimria at $475,000 for a single dose. Now, it's important to understand that if the charges were $475,000, that would be the cost at average wholesale price. So if you have access to Predict Rx, you can see that we've actually given you a few different benchmarks in order to see what potential costs could actually be. So let's talk first about our AMS risk threshold. Our risk threshold cost for Kimria is $1,045,000. And the AMS risk threshold, which is one of our proprietary benchmarks, really represents the fiscal red line of cost tolerance. ART is the absolute maximum that you should tolerate as billed for, um, in this case, the, the Kimria. We use a variety of different benchmarks in order to come to that. We look at average wholesale price. We look at wholesale acquisition cost. We look at average sales price. And we actually, actually look at something called the NADAC, which is the National Average Drug acquisition cost. And then we take all of those, we run them through an algorithm that we use to look at what would be the maximum charge one should accept. And that's how we come up with the the ART. You'll also note in Predict Rx, another benchmark we have is the AMS cost projection. And the AMS cost projection that we have for, again, a single dose of Kimria is $547,200. So the ACP actually denotes the usual costs of a given drug within the U.S. Again, this is a proprietary benchmark that is calculated using federally contracted rates for government agencies, incorporating amounts paid by any private sector purchase. Um, for the the pharmaceutical um, discounts, rebates, chargebacks, and other fiscal adjustments are all actually factored into that price. So simply put, the ACP is the expected cost for a particular drug or dosage amount. And so in this case, we're looking at about $547,000. We also give you a couple of um, uh, pharmacy benefit management um, cost for this, and you can see that uh, if you have Predict Rx, the range of that for an average PBM is anywhere from four hundred eighty-five thousand dollars to five hundred thirteen thousand dollars. And then, if you look at a transparent PBM such as Southern Scripts, which is also in Predict Rx, the costs run anywhere from four hundred ten thousand dollars to four hundred sixty-eight thousand dollars. So. 
regardless of where the drug cost actually falls, you're really never going to be less than $400,000, and it could be as much as a million dollars for a single dose of Kimria. So it's inordinately expensive to give, and then again, you have to factor in the cost of other therapies that these patients may have already received. Now, as bad as those costs sound, it actually really could have been worse. Um, although Novartis priced the drug at $475,000 for uh, a treatment, that was actually below the higher expectations, which were um, about $700,000. And Novartis has said it's going to offer some ways to make the price lower for you know for some patients but we really haven't seen that yet again because of the limited selection of patients that actually will um, will qualify for this treatment now Novartis has said it will only collect payments from CMS which is Medicare if patients respond to treatment by the end of the first month so that's a an interesting uh, sort of take on how they they would plan to get coverage for the drug. Now, they haven't mentioned anything about doing that with private payers, but it's possible that depending on how things go, you could see that the um, Novartis will, uh, will reimburse the cost of the drug if it doesn't work within the, the private sector. One interesting thing that Novartis has talked about for Kimria, because they are looking at getting additional approval for other types of, of cancers. Um, hopefully they're thinking 2018 and 2019. They already have uh, additional filings in the U.S. And, um, and the European Union for the treatment of adult patients with refractory or relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is a, a, a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So they're looking at potentially getting approval for that in 2018. And one of the interesting things that they're looking to do is actually to use what they call indication-based pricing, which means it would charge patients differently depending on what sort of cancer they have. We've never really seen that before. If you look at other drugs that are out there, um, and as I mentioned before, things like Gleevec or Herceptin, the costs are the costs, regardless of which indication the the drug is actually being given for. So it, it's uh, it's sort of a, a new way to look at pricing um, for Novartis to to do that. Um, you know, right now it's Kimria's uh, initial approval is only for ALL, and we expect that these patients actually will be charged the highest price, not only because it's a, a niche population, but actually because the drug works particularly well in this group with remissions achieved in about 83% of patients within three months. So there isn't that much risk to Novartis that the, the drug won't work. But in clinical trials for patients with the, the specific type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma of diffuse large um, B cell, it actually hasn't worked that well. So Novartis would likely charge less for that group um, if it were to be approved for those patients because you, they may actually need to provide some motivation for physicians um, to prescribe and for payers to cover a drug in a larger population that actually would see less benefit. So variable pricing may actually help Kimria as it as it goes along. 
Um, and as I mentioned, they're working with CMS to look, to talk about not charging them if the drug doesn't work within a month. Now, again, it takes about three months for 83% of the patients to actually achieve remission. So there may be some play with that actually, uh, with that actual um, timeline. Relapses after Kimria um, in ALL tend to um, occur later. So if they offer discounts that were actually tied to longer-term success, that actually may be more meaningful for them. So it really just depends on um, how they decide to do the pricing and how many patients actually receive it and really what they see the, the results being. One thing to keep in mind, again, as I mentioned, in terms of the costs is you certainly need to take into account all of the other treatments that these patients have received, as well as the ancillary costs with housing and lodging and and travel and how that might be written into a plan or a a stop-loss policy. And the other piece you really need to think about are some of the complications that can occur. The reason that these patients need to be within two hours of an administering facility um, is because of the most serious reaction, which is called cytokine um, release syndrome. And the, um, the problem with CRS, as it's called, um, is that it can um, be very, very toxic for the, the patient, and they usually need to um, have urgent hospitalization for that. Almost 50% of patients treated with Kimria experienced grade 3 or grade 4 cytokine release syndrome. Um, in addition to approving Kimria at the same time, the FDA approved another drug called Actemra, which is approved for other things as well, to treat CAR T-cell uh, induced CRS. And that should be readily available at the time of the infusion. So you have to assume the additional cost of hospitalization for these patients, um, as well as the Actemra. There are some other complications as well. Um, low gamma globulin levels, um, infections, fever, decreased appetite, headache, um, encephalopathy, which are mental status changes, um, low blood blood pressure, um, bleeding episodes, a fast heart rate, um, low oxygen level, acute kidney injury, and, and delirium. So there are several additional things that do need to be considered when you're talking about giving Kimria. And uh, it's important to make sure that it the drug is being given appropriately. Again, it is not meant for first-line therapy. So if you're seeing it as, as first and only, that would definitely indicate some sort of clinical issue in terms of medical necessity and or experimental review. So that's the first CAR-T therapy And what we're going to do next is move to Yaskarta, which is the second CAR-T therapy that was actually approved. So Yaskarta was FDA approved on October 18th in 2017, and it is indicated for the treatment of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, it is indicated specifically for the treatment of relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphoma after two or more lines of systemic therapy. So Yaskarta 
is at least third-line therapy for these particular patients. Again, you should not see it being given as first-line therapy. It should not be your second option. It should be at least the third option and then fourth, etc. cetera. Um, so it's typically referred to um, as, as what we call salvage therapy. So the types of large B-cell, um, the types of lymphoma that it is indicated to treat are diffuse, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified, primary mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma, high-grade B-cell lymphoma, and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma arising from follicular lymphoma. So actually follicular lymphoma, which is um, a little more indolent and uh, easier to, to treat and go into remission, can undergo cell transformation and turn into diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, in which case you would see um, Yaskarta being used. It is not indicated for the treatment of patients with primary central nervous system lymphoma. We actually spoke with Gilead, who is the pharmaceutical company who developed um, Yaskarta to, uh, to get some clarification on the, the cell types. And Yaskarta was developed using the World Health Organization 2016 criteria for lymphoma. And what that means is that mantle cell lymphoma, Burkitt's lymphoma, and those with Richter transformation are not included. And Yaskarta can actually not be manufactured for those types of patients. So if they have that specific type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you should not see Yaskarta being given um, in those particular patients. Yaskarta is only available through a restricted um, program under a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. Um, that is obviously not surprising given um, its costs and, and how it is is given. Patients um, who are given Yaskarta also have uh, similar risks to patients who are given Kimria in terms of cytokine release syndrome, and they should be monitored for at least seven days, um, again, within that certified healthcare facility following the infusion for um, for that particular disorder. You'll notice it is um, a little bit less time than what you would see with Kimria. Yaskarta is similar to Kimria in that it is a single infusion that is given. Again, the cells are, the T cells are taken from the patient. They are sent to Gilead. They are remanufactured to fight the patient's specific uh, type of lymphoma and then reinfused back into the patient. Um, the dose depends on the, the body weight. And the same type of thing is um, is indicated as in Kimria that prior to the Ascarta infusion, they are given uh, lymphodepleting therapy with um, both Cytoxin and uh, Fludara. Uh, the the regimen is a little bit different. The Cytoxin and Fludara are given on the third, fourth, and fifth day prior to the Ascarta infusion, and then the Ascarta is actually given. So. A little bit about pricing with Yaskarta. Uh, again, if we're talking about what um, the drug is actually going to be priced at, it uh, average wholesale price for Yaskarta is about $375,000. Whether or not we'll actually see those costs for both Kimria and Yaskarta, again, does remain to be seen. Yaskarta has only been given in about three to five patients. So there is a limited sample to look for, uh, to, to look at currently. 
and um, we don't really know where pricing will end up going. Again, I th much as we talked about in um, previous webinars that I've given, it could be very similar to the hepatitis C drugs where the publicity of the high price tag of these drugs may actually tamp down the, the pricing. So you may see costs somewhere in the neighborhood of, of average wholesale price. But again, you do need to take into account the cost of the previous therapies that these patients have received, as well as, again, the need to remain in a, a specific area after the drug is given for a certain amount of time. So again, average wholesale price being about $375,000. What we would look at in terms of our risk threshold, which is the absolute maximum you should see the drug being charged at would be about $821,000, so significantly higher. And where we expect to see the, the cost run for this drug with our AMS cost projection is about $430,000. And if you look at the uh, PBM pricing that we have in PredictRx as well, the uh, depending on if it's a transparent PBM such as Southern Scripts or a uh, an average PBM, your costs are going to run anywhere but between say three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars and about four hundred and three thousand dollars. So although <laughs> very expensive, again, it is actually less expensive than we um, than a lot of analysts predicted in terms of, of the cost of this drug. Uh, it is important, again, to note that this is one-time therapy and you should not uh, see it being given again. Um, much as um, Novartis is looking at different approvals for Kimria, Gilead is certainly looking at uh, additional approvals for Yaskarta. Uh, it's unclear if that would actually occur within uh, 2018. So those are the two CAR T therapies that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about and, um, and how they're given and when they should be used. Certainly, if you have any questions, uh, you can always contact us to see whether or not these drugs are being given appropriately. Be sure to look in PredictRx for any updates. Um, to these drugs, as you know, we will always uh, update the um, the directory in, in real time as those as those occur. And so, finally, the last thing that I wanted to talk about is the newest drug that um, that has been approved, and actually the first gene therapy drug to be approved, and that is a drug called Luxterna. And before we talk uh, specifically about the drug, what I'd like to do is to talk to you a little bit um, about what gene therapy means and what it means to edit genes, uh, just so you have a little bit of background. So for those of you who aren't clinical, you can feel free to fast forward and skip right over this part if you're not at all interested, and then come back when I'm actually talking about Luxterna. Okay, so all of those of you who are still with me, let's talk a little bit about gene editing and what it is and why we want to, why we would use it. So gene editing actually rewrites the our DNA, which is the biological code that makes up the instruction manuals of all living organisms, so that includes humans. With gene editing, researchers can actually disable target genes, correct harmful mutations, and change the activity of specific genes um, in, in not only humans, but, but plants and animals. Well, you know, why would we actually want to do this? Well, there are thousands of genetic disorders out there that can actually be passed from 
one generation to the next. And many of these are, are serious and, and debilitating. And in fact, they're not rare. And one in 20, every 25 children is born with a genetic disease. And among the most common genetic diseases that you would see would be cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, um, and muscular dystrophy. So gene editing actually, you know, holds a lot of promise in treating these disorders by rewriting the corrupt DNA in the, the patient's cells. Um, and it's, it, so it's something that's, you know, obviously very exciting for, for people to look at as on the horizon, because certainly if you can correct a mutated gene, you are actually then able to correct the underlying disorder. So we're not looking at drugs that actually go ahead and, and, and just treat a disease in order to keep somebody um, stabilized or from having disease progression. You can actually cure the disorder. And that's why, you know, it's, it's really, really exciting to, um, to look at. So, um, so how does this actually work? Well, there's many different ways to edit genes, but the, the breakthrough behind the greatest achievement in recent years is a molecular tool actually called CRISPR. Um, it's, it, its full name is CRISPR CAS9, um, but most people you will hear refer to as CRISPR. And what that does is it uses a guide molecule, which is called the CRISPR bit, to find a specific region in the genetic code, a mutated gene as an example, and then it is cut by the enzyme, which is actually the CAS9. When the cell tries to fix the, the damage, it sort of kind of makes a, a mess of itself and it effectively disables the gene. So that in itself is very useful for term, turning off a, a harmful gene. So other types of repairs are, are possible. So for example, to mend a, a faulty gene, Scientists can cut the mutated DNA and then replace it with a healthy strand that is injected alongside the CRISPR-CAS9 molecule. So different enzymes can be used instead of that CAS9, um, which can uh, help to edit the, the DNA more effective, effectively. So you can see it's very exciting. You can, you can cut the gene, and then when the gene tries to repair itself, it doesn't actually work, and so that turns off that actual faulty gene. But then you can also insert healthy DNA and mend that gene. So there's a couple of different ways to actually go about you know, doing this. Um, it's difficult to get to the, the right cells. Um, that's the biggest challenge in this CRISPR technology. And um, most drugs are very small molecules that can that sort of go around the, the body and the bloodstream and are delivered to organs and tissues, you know, on the, on the way. Gene editing molecules are actually very large by comparison and actually have trouble getting into cells, but it, but it can be done. And one way is to pack the gene editing molecules into harmless viruses that affect particular types of cells. And then millions of these are injected into the bloodstream or directly into affected tissues. Once in the body, the viruses invade those target cells, release the gene editing molecules to, to do their work. Um, and actually in 2017, some scientists down in Texas used that approach to treat um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy um, in mice. Um, so there, so that is sort of, you know, one way to, to do that. They've also used sort of fatty 
small particles to carry CRISPR um, molecules to the liver, um, tiny zaps of electricity to open pores in, in embryo, embryos through which the, the gene editing molecules can enter. Um, in some cases, this is, is actually done outside of the body. Scientists collect the cells from the patient's blood, make the necessary genetic edits, then infuse the modified cells back into the into the the patients. So, um, so it's exciting technology, and certainly um, there are you know it's not perfect. There are there are some problems, um, and things can go wrong. It can be a little bit of of hit and miss in terms of reaching some cells and and not others. So even when CRISPR gets where it's needed. The edits can differ from cell to cell. Um, for example, mending two copies of a mutated gene in one cell, but only one copy in another. And so for some genetic diseases, that doesn't really matter, but it may if a single mutated gene causes the, the disorder and, and you miss that one. Another common problem that happens when the edits are made at the wrong place in the in the genome, and there can be hundreds of these off-target edits that can be dangerous if they disrupt healthy genes or, or crucial regulatory um, DNA. So there's um, a lot of excitement around gene therapy and gene editing, um, and you know we're certainly just on the on the cusp of this. But the the first gene therapy that actually um, was FDA approved is a drug that is called Luxterna. So let's talk a little bit about that and, and how it's used and that will finish up our, our podcast. So Luxterna was FDA approved on December 19th in 2017, um, as treatment for inherited retinal dystrophy, which, uh, for which it received an orphan drug designation. So this particular form of, um, of a genetic disorder it causes um, blindness in patients. So patients with this condition generally start losing their sight before age 18, and they almost always progress to total blindness. The defective gene that causes this disease can actually be passed down for generations undetected before suddenly appearing when a child inherits a copy for um, from um, from both parents. It is a, an extremely rare disorder. It affects only about two to three thousand patients um, in the the U.S. and it is um, it actually is a, a very specific type of inherited retinal dystrophy. It, these patients have to have confirmed by allelic RP. E65 mediated inherited retinal dystrophy, dystrophy, sorry. Um, and um, the patients will have vision loss, but they have viable retinal cells. So Luxterna was actually approved to, to treat this. And it is a one-time gene therapy that has noted efficacy for up to four years um, in the, the clinical trials. It is uh, so. Luxterna is actually um, was actually developed by a company called um, Spark Therapeutics, and the way that this drug is given again, it is a single dose, but it is um, per eye, so it is um, indicated for both adults and children. So patients um, over the age of one year receive this, and. It is a, um, a single fixed dose um, injection 
in each eye. <clears throat> and Spark Therapeutics actually announced that the full course of treatment would cost about $850,000. And in order for that to be the case, the drug would need to be billed below average wholesale price for that to occur. Now, I will tell you that $850,000 is a significant amount of money. However, it is actually less than the $1 million price tag that um, analysts had expected. Um, of course, it is obviously the most expensive you know, genetic therapy that uh, that we know of. Um, Spark actually says it doesn't decided on a lower price tag for Luxterner um, after hearing from payers that they're uh, about their ability to to cover this injectable treatment. So um, due to I guess feared backlash, they actually lowered the drug from one million dollars to um, to eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. Now, due to the rarity of that condition, as I told you, it only affects two to three thousand people. This therapy actually was only tested on fewer than fifty people. So it is a very small trial that actually um, uh, was conducted. And the um, you know the company's CEO said the you know the effects of this treatment could be lifelong, but obviously that remains to be to be seen. So. Again, the drug is priced at average wholesale price of about $850,000. Spark actually did announce it would offer a partial refund for health insurers if the drug does not work in the first three months after treatment, and it may consider a refund again after two and a half years. So they are offering some incentives for uh, for payers to to cover this. That is not limited to the only the Medicare population. That would also be commercial payers as well. So it is interesting to um, to see um, if they honor that and sort of what happens with that. This uh, this is considered first line therapy. There has been no other treatment to date for um, for this disorder. So it would be um, it would be something that you would see given. Um, uh, as an only treatment. Although the announced price for the, the drug is the 850000 we still obviously put in PredictRx our, our particular pricing benchmarks. So in this case, our risk threshold, which again is the maximum amount that you would expect to, uh, or would tolerate to, for, this, uh, for this drug is $1.9 million, and that's for the, the two doses. Our cost projection, which is what we expect to see the the drug billed at, is nine hundred and seventy nine thousand two hundred dollars, and the the PBM costs range anywhere from seven hundred and thirty four thousand dollars to nine hundred and eighteen thousand um, dollars. Because it's just so rare, we really don't know what we're going to see in terms of the in terms of the the pricing. Uh, again, we expect that the publicity of this drug would, would keep it down in that $850,000 range, which I guess is, is good news. But I guess the question really is, um, you know, is, uh, what's the cost, uh, effectiveness, um, of the, the drug. And there is a group out there that actually looks at these types of things. And that is, uh, an organization called the Institute 
for clinical and economic review. And they've actually taken a look at Luxterna um, and, and provided a report on that. And in their analysis, they said that the 850000 list price um, was actually was too high. And they felt it was actually four times too high, according to their report. And what uh, in looking at it, they in accounting for the medical benefits of giving Luxterna to 15-year-olds with, uh, with inherited retinal dystrophy, um, ICER felt that the price should be between $153,000 and $217,000 to earn a designation of cost-effectiveness. And even when ICER took into account the societal benefits of treating patients with Lux- with Luxterna, they still felt that the price should actually be at least halved. So, you know, this pricing discussion um, around around Luxterna really has been watched closely um, in a as a sign of uh, of what the the age of gene therapy may actually um, look like. There is an important distinction between Luxterna and some of the other gene therapies in the various company um, pipelines. Um, ICER did credit Luxterna for providing a decade or two of vision improvements, but it dinged it because it's not clear if it will provide lifelong benefits. If other gene therapies out there really can reverse or cure a disease, then the higher prices will probably be more palatable to ICER um, and to, to, to payers at large. So it really comes down to, is this going to be truly cures for diseases or um, are we going to just be seeing more long-term progress? Uh, you could certainly argue that, uh, you know, a decade or two of vision improvements um, is is very cost-effective, particularly if, if you're the patient and you have 10 to 20 years more of being able to, to see. Um, other drugs and other gene therapies out there uh, may not have such such long term uh, effects, so I guess we just have to take a, a a watch and 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 wait and and see what actually is going to happen with these gene therapies. So I hope that you have gotten a lot of information and learned a lot today about Kimria and Yascarta and Luxterna. We uh, we certainly aim to give you as much information as possible. If you have any questions at all, please feel free to contact me. My email address is Stacy S T A C Y dot Borans B O R A N S at mdstrat.com. Thank you all for joining me on our very first podcast. We look forward to doing more of these and providing more educational information for you. Have a wonderful day.